Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Glanville. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, now part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you will find great baseball talk all week long, all lockout long, and all spring training long, or whatever the heck this is that we're watching now. Uh, More on that in a moment. Uh, I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic, and I am joined, as always, by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, Emmy winner, distinguished former major leaguer, Doug Glanville. Doug, how's your spring training going so far? Well, I, I, it probably relates to the fact that I'm still seeing snow out my window. And uh, it, so it's allowing me to feel like I'm in the Antarctica to reflect the sort of relationship right now between the owners and the players. So we got to thaw <laughs> that out a little bit so we can move a little bit more towards the equator. I mean, right now I'll take New Jersey. We don't have to go all the way to like the Sahara Desert. We can just warm it up a little bit and, and feel good and fuzzy. <laughs> well, uh, before we talk some inside labor with our friend Kevin Rosenthal, uh, I, I need to tell you how my spring training is going. Uh, you know I'm in Florida. I arrived in Florida last Tuesday. I, I lugged all my stuff out of the trunk of my rent-a-car moved it into this place where I am renting for the month. And I'm telling you, Doug, literally 30 seconds later, all hell broke loose. This was negotiating day, right? So we thought there might be a deal when the day began. How long ago does that seem? And then obviously the opposite of that happened. And so I had to go right to work immediately. I, I didn't unpack until the next day. I didn't eat until like nine o'clock that night. I was writing until almost midnight. It was madness. So that was nuts enough. Uh, But now I'm in this phase where I'm driving around Florida covering something. (laughs) I, I guess the formal name for it would be minor league spring training, but it's just so weird. I go to these camps uh, I recognize a few names on the back of the shirts. I'm, I'm meeting a lot of player development directors, I'll tell you that. But honestly, I feel like I am living in a parallel universe. Uh, I spent five hours at Braves camp on Sunday because that was the first day of spring training for the team that won the World Series. And nobody who won the World Series for that team was in attendance. We had no World Series heroes. We had no coaches. We had no Brian Snitker. We had no Alex Anthopoulos. We had no 
fans, Doug. So I spent the whole time thinking about who wasn't there instead of who was. Is that wrong? I feel a little guilty about it. Well, I mean, no, I think that is the natural instinct. I know for me, 95, well, 94 strike went into 95 spring training and I was on the major league roster and I wasn't there. And the thing that I knew was so hard is we had a very short spring training, played a couple of games and they certainly weren't trying to get someone like me ready because they had to get all the starters ready in the big league level. So I got about eight at bats, a couple of backfield games, you know, perfect. And then we, you know, ended up breaking camp, but I was going to triple a. So all those players you're seeing now, they're already going into their season. So just imagine you have some, you know, star players that don't need to be on strike right now or lockout locked out. So they're able to train and then they go to triple a double a and they're playing. And let's say this thing ends in may, June, whatever. Now (laughs) all those players that are on the roster, but not in the big leagues, they're going to go to triple a and face guys that are in mid season form and had a whole spring training. That was my story in 95. And I felt like I was behind. I mean, I did what I could. So sometimes these, these top prospects, these sort of the bottom 14 of the roster, they're going to be struggling a little bit the longer this goes because they're not going to really get the exposure. Once the thing, once the light comes on, then it's all about the big leaguers and and the, the 20, well, six man roster right now. So, yeah. Yeah. Really good point. Um, all right, here's the other thing people might want to know about the glamour of covering spring training or whatever it is I'm covering. Uh, I stand I stand on the backfields of spring training. You know it well, right? I, Sunday, I stood on the backfields of the Braves complex for five hours. I mean, I might have sat down for something like 45 seconds to send a text but there was no shade, there was no food, there was no water. It was 91 degrees, record heat. It was totally sunstroke waiting to happen. And you know, I'm, 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 I know that everyone listening to this right now is overwhelmed by sympathy for me having to cover whatever this is. <laughs> but, but Doug, like you're the one person, you can relate to this. You ha- I know that you must have tales of standing on the backfields at these spring training complexes until you were delirious. Am I right? This is 100% true. Uh, so <laughs> I, the best description of the backfield is exile. Just That's how you think of it, exile. You've, you've been banished from your nation and you are somewhere else. Like you can't come back. So exile, and, and actually Joe Torre sums this up really well because in 2005, I went to spring training with the Yankees as my last hurrah, and I was stationed on the quote backfield. I was, you know, and I noticed pretty quickly, like, well, you know, I'm looking around, like, am I going to make this team? I didn't see Derek Jeter. I didn't, <laughs> there's no Bernie Williams. It was just me and just everybody else. So uh, I was a little concerned, like, this may not bode well. I'm not off good, good start. Then Frank Howard is our outfield instructor, and all he's doing is yelling at us, hitting fungos like Iron Mike, like one after the other with no breaks, no water breaks. And, and he's, he's like, oh, come on, get after the ball. Come on, son, you can get the ball. And we just scream it at us the whole time. Uh, so, and I kept looking at, I mean, I think it was Damian Rolls, like, is Frank okay? He's, he's going to like pass out here if he keeps screaming like that. One fungo after the other. So that is the backfield. And, uh, and if, you're a, if you're in the base running mode, you're doing like PFPs for the pitchers who are throwing the first base on a bunt and you're running the first, you're getting in rundowns. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's horrible. I'm waiting for like a cactus to grow out of second base when we were in Arizona. So yeah, it's, it's just, it's nothing pleasant, but thankfully this is where I appreciate Joe Torrey. He good communication skills. He knew that I probably was concerned and he thought I had a chance to make the team. So one day I, Joe Torrey pops up on the backfield and he's like, Hey, Glanville, look, I don't want you to think because you're here in exile, you are not going to make the team. So I just want to know, we know where you are. And we don't need GPS to find you, but we, we just letting you know you are part of this plan. So that, that was like amazing. It was like psychic. I was like, wow, Joe, I get it. Joe Torrey knew that I was a little worried there. Like, am I going to come back? So, you know, it's a, uh, so backfield, all you, you, those two words together tells a whole story of spring training. I, I was so hoping you were going to tell the Frank Howard story. Like I, I have so many of your stories that I love. The Frank Howard story is way up there. Is Frank okay? No, he's not. But are we okay? No, we're not either. That, that sums up life on the backfields. Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market hey doug you know how on saturday night live they had that five timers club for all the people who have hosted that show a lot of times i think we might need one of those clubs for our next guest our friend ken rosenthal because i i'm certain that i'm safe in saying nobody has visited starkville more than ken and he is back again this week so, Ken, I'm not sure exactly why you keep visiting Starkville. It's not quite Maui, but thank you, pal. Welcome back. Well, we're going to have to negotiate something, Jason, because once again, I had to pay the toll coming into Starkville. <laughs> yeah, and I would wrong. think by now I'd at least get something like an easy pass or something along those lines. <laughs> apparently, Starkville is just a hard uptown. <laughs> we don't want anybody coming in here, it turns out. <laughs> All right. Well, you can. I'll tell you what. You can expense that. Okay. Then Ven, we'll Venmo you the toll money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, like Fifty you, cents, you, anyway. Yeah, it's not, something like that. I don't even know how much the toll is. I don't want to know. <laughs> I, I, look, there's never a bad time to invite Ken to Starkville, but it's pretty obvious why this is excellent timing. Ken, maybe you've heard there's a lockout going on. Um, I don't know if you've noticed. The talks to end that lockout are not going that smoothly. Um, you're such a great reporter. You probably caught on to that, but I just thought I should bring it to your attention. No, I appreciate it, Jason. And it has not escaped me. In fact, we are nearing day 100 of this 100 years war Ugh. between the lovely parties, and there's no real end in sight. So, Ken, like, what the heck, man? <laughs> it's the second <laughs> week of March. 
it feels like we've actually gone backwards in these negotiations in the last week. That's never good. So let me ask you about what happened over the weekend. Players made a proposal. As always, the other side not that upbeat about it. Now they can't even agree on whether they move closer or whatever the opposite of closer is. Like, what is your view of that offer and what happened after the union made it? Well, Jason, first of all, I would not say the negotiations last week went backward because they never went forward. Now, yes, they were talking, and in the perspective of the league, there was momentum, but the union never felt that way. So then we fast forward to this weekend, or this just past weekend, when, of course, they had a day or two to cool off. The PA came back with another proposal. The league spokesman, Glenn Kaplan, said that actually was backwards. I don't know how you can say that based on what was on the table. Now, there were some things said verbally in Florida at the end of the negotiations that the league thought the union would then put in writing, but the union did not go that far. Whether those were verbal promises, verbal comments, whatever they were, we're not going forward. And Jason, as you've said many times, we've all said this, you could wake up, you could walk outside with a union official and a league official and say, guys, what color is the sky? One would say blue, the other would say gray. If the other one said gray, then the other one would say blue. And this is where we've been for a couple of years now, and it's incredibly frustrating for those of us covering it, for most of all, the fans who want baseball back. Yeah, they can't even agree on what they're not agreeing on. Like This, this is where we are. Uh, but since you, you mentioned this, I, um, I, I just wanted to ask you about what happened in Jupiter because there's something – that went on there that really I find confusing. Um, like a lot of people got caught up in what seemed like momentum, was portrayed like momentum on that Monday night. I, like I'll admit that I did. I've talked to agents, players, front office people, they did. And then of course it all fell apart. But here's the part that I'm confusing about, that I'm confused about. Like, were they ever close in any way, I, I have talked to people in various front offices who told me their teams held Zooms that night to tell everybody, hey, be ready. Uh, I know coaching staffs that had lurched into action. They were working on their plans for how they were going to conduct a, this really short spring training, knowing exactly what they thought the time frame was going to be. So somebody led them to believe a deal was close. And yet, as you said, on the other side, on the player side, they've been very firm in saying they were never close, that it was an illusion uh, created by the owners to make them look bad. So did something happen between two in the morning and two in the afternoon? It feels like something did. I'm not sure what. What's your impression of that? Jason, it seemed to me, and I wasn't in Florida, but certainly was following along and talking to people myself, that the league felt they were checking some boxes off and moving forward. Now, no matter whether that feeling was based on reality or whether it was based on their desire to create some kind of public relations pressure on the union, hey, there's momentum, here we go, I don't know. But the league did at least project that. Now, the question then becomes, okay, what about the other side? And one thing 
and I don't need to tell you this, Jason. You've covered a million of these things, and I don't even need to tell Doug this. He understands how this works. It is pointless to get your information from one side here because the other side, as you just said earlier in this podcast, often has a different view of reality. And the union's view throughout the day, from hour one to three in the morning when I checked for the last time, was we are not close. There are large gaps on major issues. And I believe that was my tweet around 2.30 or 3. I was quoting a player as saying that. So for a deal to be close, I would think that both sides have to agree that the deal is close. The other side, the union, never agreed on that. And it was their perception, voiced by Ross Stripling and others, that this was merely a PR stunt by the league to try to kind of force them to crack. And without question, I can say this. That late push by the league was kind of a bull rush of a negotiation. That's how I wrote it. They just came in, bull in a china shop. Here we go, guys. We've got a deal for you now. Well, they had waited 43 days initially. They had gone back and forth for some time after that. And then all of a sudden, the players felt like the league was kind of making this move and it still wasn't far enough. And they were not going to be persuaded to take a deal that they did not want to take. Yeah, I mean, I think about something Gene Orza said in an interview a couple months ago, uh, and the term he you know, references exercise in authenticity. And he talks about that in the context of pressure. You set deadlines, you create pressure, and you find out what each side cares about the most. Have you been able to figure out what are those key points that they care most about from each perspective, the Players Association and the league, is there something like one key element that they're like, this is the hill or die on, this is the, the issue that we want to resolve? Doug, it's interesting because at the start of the negotiations, the players shot high. They wanted age-based free agency. They wanted expanded arbitration eligibility starting at two years instead of three. They wanted reductions in revenue sharing. At that point, or around that time, the league basically said, we're not negotiating on any of them. Sorry, that's not happening. So where we are now is in a situation where we're negotiating, or they're negotiating, off of things that already exist in the agreement. No major changes to the reserve system. We're talking about the competitive balance tax, the pre r bonus pool that we've discussed so often, the minimum salaries. Those are three of the main issues, and the competitive balance tax being foremost among them. And that seems to be the one, Doug, if you want to identify the hill to die on, it seems to be that. Now, the players want those thresholds higher. The owners do not want them higher. They believe that when they're higher, it creates greater payroll disparity, greater competitive imbalance. But at the same time, as I reported on Sunday night, the idea that the small market owners or those against raising the thresholds, because it's not all small market owners, would not move off of $220 million, the league's current proposal for the first level. That is what I thought was possibly the case based on some of the things that came out over the weekend. But I was told last night by people with knowledge of the league's thinking that if they could get gives in other areas, specifically, probably most importantly, with rules changes and speeding up the timetable for rules changes, then perhaps... They could move off 220 and get closer to the union's ask of 238 for that first threshold. So that seems to be, Doug, the one thing that is the biggest holdup. But 
there are ways to attack that with other gives and other concessions and other trade-offs that perhaps would make that less of a singular issue, if that makes sense. Well, and one thing, I guess, thinking about how we got here, you know, you hear a lot about this sort of term, quote, labor peace. How would you characterize what labor peace has meant for sort of each side? And I, I don't even like to use sides because they're supposed to be on the same side. But, right, but, right. But, but, but from the owners and the players, because it, it seems like the, the player share of revenue is less. I mean, was labor peace kind of beneficial to the owners in certain ways versus the players? Well, Doug, you're right. It should benefit both. And everybody should grow. There should be some degree of partnership between the parties, and that is best for the long-term health of the sport. In recent years, I don't know that the owners have necessarily taken advantage of labor peace, but they certainly have taken advantage of the terms in the last two agreements, 2012 and 2016. Now, nothing they did was illegal or in violation of the terms of the agreement. You could argue the service time stuff, but they won the Chris Bryant grievance, whether that was just or not. So they have operated with the goal of maximum efficiency, and maximum efficiency leads to, in many ways, payroll reductions and lower salaries for players. That's what has happened. There's a lesser percentage of revenue going to the players now than there was five years ago. And that is a problem for the players. There's no question about that. So I would say it's more the terms of the agreement and the past two agreements and the owners and clubs' ability to spend what they want within those terms and not be swayed one way or the other that has really got us to this moment. And let's go back to the competitive balance tax and the thresholds. The owners... Some owners, the ones at the top, have treated this as a de facto salary cap. That's not the way it was intended. I've got a story up on the site now about the origins of the tax and what the spirit of it and what was supposed to be and how it was supposed to be negotiated in future agreements after its inception in 1996. So that is a problem. And when the players feel that way, Ed Back Scherzer has been kind of outspoken about this. Hey, that's a cap. Gene Orza told me they're treating it like a cap. That's a problem for the players, and the owners actually should know that. Hey, Ken, I want to circle back to um, something you mentioned a little earlier, this, the, the story that you wrote Sunday about how baseball has told the union was open to raising those thresholds if the players give in in other areas. And, you know, this is one of several times along the way I feel like MLB has been trying to send a signal to the players about where they would like them to move. Um, it's funny, every time I refer to this, the union pushes back on that, says it's like saying it's not the time for signals, let's do this. But this is an important signal. Do you think there's any chance in your mind that the union will pick up on this particular signal, understand where they need to move, and this could somehow, by some miracle, be the area where they finally find a path to a deal. Jason, I don't know. And certainly when you make this point to the union that, hey, they're asking for these particular gives, the union response I would expect would be, uh, haven't we given enough already? We got off 
age-based free agency. We got off arbitration and the expansion of eligibility. We got off with the reductions in revenue sharing. We're essentially giving them the same basic agreement, just with different terms. And yes, a pre-arb pool that we suggested. And their feeling is they've given and they've given and they've given and they don't want to give any more. Now, you talk to the management side, the league. Oh, we've made concessions all kinds of places. We've listened to the players, this, that, and the other thing. So both sides seem to be of the opinion that they've given quite enough. And some of the things that I listed in that article were a lower ask on the pre r bonus pool. The union is at $80 million as of Monday when we are taping this. The league is at $30 million. That would seem to be something that would be negotiable further. The union did move $5 million on Sunday. They dropped it from $85 million to $80 million. Also, what the owners want, another thing, is extreme penalties on the highest spenders. Like, if the Mets go to $265, $300 million, they want big-time penalties in place to discourage that kind of runaway spending. And the third thing, as I mentioned, were the rules changes, which the union has agreed to for 2023. The three big ones that they've asked for, the league, pitch clock, larger bases, and the ability to employ some kind of shift rule. But what the league wants in addition is the right to basically within 45 days of the 2023 seasons and to establish new rules that would be ready for 24 and not 25, which is how it kind of works now. You talk about the rules changes you want, then the commissioner has to give a year's notice. This is under the previous agreement. And then you go a year after that. The league wants that streamlined. Jason, when you talk about those three things, do any of them seem outrageous? No. But again, the union feels like, hey, wait, we've given here, 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 and now you're asking for this. I haven't gotten their response. They haven't, the league has not made a formal offer on any of these things. So once the league makes an offer, then we would truly know what the union is thinking. But my suspicion is that they would say, hey, uh-uh. If you want to do this, this, and this, then we want this, this, and this. And that's kind of where we are, to, why we are where we are today. You know, you left out the uh, MLB's, one of their favorite things that they complain about is when the union says, we've moved on this, we've moved on that, their response is, you're giving us back stuff you never had <laughs> that we told you you were never going to get. <laughs> I know. And, and Jason, I've heard that too. And that's one argument that I don't really feel is... I don't want to say the word proper. I think it's a little bit disingenuous. Yes, the league said we'd never negotiate on this, this, and this. So when the union comes off these things, they were never getting it anyway. I get that. But those were things the union wanted. Those were things that the union entered this negotiation seeking to talk about. And frankly, they never had a chance. Yeah. Uh, all right, since you mentioned rule changes, my favorite topic. I, I'm yes. just fascinated by every proposal now seems like it has some new wrinkle, okay? And <laughs> This is another one that came up very late in the process, these rule changes. Like, I wrote a piece three months ago about mm -hmm. how the players had signaled, there's that word signal again, <laughs> that they were open to discussing these rule changes as long as they were part of the entire package. And MLB specifically told them then uh, that they did not want to do that, that they wanted to put that off to the side so they could figure out the core economic issues. And now, like very late in the game, 
the owners bring those rule changes back into play. I mean, it feels like we've asked variations of this question a lot, but why, why do you think they waited so long? And where is this heading? Maybe because when you introduce this late in the process and then say you want the union to give so you can get something else, lower CBT thresholds in this case, that's a strategy. And it's funny, Jason, we talk about the style of these negotiations and you just mentioned the league didn't want to talk about this. And now, oh, all of a sudden they want to talk about this. (laughs) And then (laughs) at the same time, the league wasn't going to talk about all the things I just mentioned, the real core economic stuff, and they're still not talking about that. So (laughs) they pick and choose. And each side does that to a certain degree, of course. But in my understanding, some of the late moves by the league bothered the union. They felt it was kind of pulling a fast one. And remember, not only were they introducing these things, they were also signaling that they had momentum when, in fact, the union never thought that the case. Yeah, you know, in the 45 days, um, I do understand that. Um, Like, you and I have talked about this. We've talked about it on this show. Like, the biggest missed opportunity in these entire negotiations is going through all of this and never addressing the product, what the game looks like on the field, making it more entertaining. And so it makes sense to me to reduce the window from a year to 45 days because start thinking about it. It's too late to address the entertainment product for 2022. Now, if you have to start negotiating again next year with a one-year implementation, 2024, 2025, whatever they think, that that is too long to wait to, to, to see what you can do to make your sport as entertaining as it can possibly be. So if you think about, we go through 2022, let's assume there will be a season, and now middle of November, Major League Baseball formally proposes these rules that we, you just mentioned, uh, shift limits, pitch clock, larger bases, maybe more. Um, it means that has to get decided before the 2023 season, which like, I actually think is a good thing. It's just the, uh, the, the, the fact that it's being used to apply pressure now that rubs me the wrong way. Jason, let me clarify one thing, because I was confused like crazy on this last night, Sunday night when I was writing it. I had to ask this six dif- different times. So they've already, the union already has agreed upon the three big ones for 23. Pitch clock, larger bases, ability to institute some kind of shift rule. Those are in the books for 23 based on where we are right now. Of course, it could blow up at any time and things can change. Baseball does not want to introduce anything more after the coming season. They're going to wait to see how the game plays out in 23 with those new rules. What they're talking about is after 23, they don't want to have to wait until 25. They want to institute some new rules, perhaps, in 24, and that's where the 45-day window comes in. And again... This would be decided not by the commissioner, as it has been in the past, but by a competition committee, which would be composed of a greater number of MLB people than union people. So really, the commissioner would still have full control of it. So that's where it is. And yes, I can understand the league's desire here. And maybe that's something the union says, okay, we can 
think about that. We can maybe do that in exchange for you guys getting more flexible, you guys being the owners, getting more flexible on the thresholds. And, you know, what do you think is most misunderstood about the relationship between these two parties? And if you could sort of describe it, you know, you kind of think, okay, I'm, it's like negotiating a house deal or have you found any parallels that sort of sum up the dynamics and why it's this sort of uh, will disagree to agree kind of thing as opposed to agree to disagree? Doug, it's funny. I think it's pretty clear <laughs> what the dynamic is here. We've been witnessing it for a couple of years. Now, you can ask what the biggest misconception, I guess, on each side would be of the other side. Mm. But that just speaks to distrust. And there's so much distrust and so many perceptions that exist right now that I don't even know that asking those questions matters. I do think coming out of this, when it does end, a lot is going to need to change. And not just in the way negotiations are conducted, but in the way the league relates to players, in the way clubs relate to players, in the way the commissioner relates to players. And he's the league, of course, but I'm talking about specifically him. And frankly, if you suggested that we need a lot of changes at the top, maybe even on both sides... I don't know that anyone could fairly say, hmm, that's a bad idea at this point. Or at least say, that's an idea that should be negotiated or talked about. It can't be negotiated. The owners are going to let the commissioner be whoever they want it to be. But as bad as this relationship has gotten, and the two sides have told us all along, this is not about relationships, guys. This is about negotiation. Well, I call BS on that. Because the relationship is so bad that you have to ask these questions now. Well, and and, and it, you have to you got to get to a better place. Well, and Ken, do you, what do you attribute that to? I mean, like I, you know, I played in a time where you had this history of anything that was ever gained was through labor dispute. I mean, it was just a that was it. And we still event, you know, we had strikes, we had lockouts, and we played baseball ultimately and economic system. So now you have twenty whatever years of quote labor peace, and you have this type of toxicity. So what? what do we circle it, it, You know, you would think that would happen because of just fighting every year, but you're fighting, still having quote peace and you still have this issue. So, you know, where does this come from? Is it history? Is it, you know, what, what's the basis? It is history, but it's recent history, Doug, right? Because clearly this generation of players has not experienced the stoppage until now. The last one was in 94, 95, but the recent history between the parties is this distrust this efficiency that the owners and clubs strove for that created what Tony Clark, I thought, aptly described last week as a commoditization of players. Players are not looked at as humans. They're looked at as numbers. So do we see that in other industries? Absolutely we see it in other industries. But this is a little bit of a different industry because the players are the product. And we need, we being the collective, we as a sport, we need to get back to a point where there's more mutual respect, I think, toward the players. And if you want that respect as clubs and owners, you have to treat them as such, the players as such. And then at that point, we can begin to repair this because it's not good. And you can look at the commissioner's remark about the World Series trophy a few years ago. You can point to a lot of different examples of the league kind of 
not looking at players and appreciating players, in my opinion, the way they should. Now, the league might dispute this. That's okay. But if you had a better relationship at the start, maybe we wouldn't be in this place right now. And I don't care what anyone on either side says. I totally believe that, firmly believe it, that the relationship is a problem. It's a problem in these negotiations. There are egos on both sides. There is a zero-sum mentality, particularly on the owner's side. They want to win. They want to win bad. Well, guess what? They're already winning. I wrote this last week. They've won. This negotiation is going to be a win because the system is going to essentially remain the same and they are only going to be compelled to spend more on the minimums and the pre-arbitration bonus pool and they can find that as they have in the past in other areas. So a lot needs to change and I hope that we get there because right now fans don't understand this. Fans don't like it. They shouldn't understand it and shouldn't like it. This is not what they signed up for. We signed up for baseball. <laughs> what a concept. Uh, let me ask you about another difficult relationship. Uh, this is the one that uh, Evan Drellick wrote about for our site in the last few days. Uh, look, we've known for a while that Rob Manfred was having issues with his owners. He was having issues lining up the votes for the kind of offer that would end this lockout. Uh, and Evan reported four teams, four owners, the Reds with Bob Castellini, Tigers with Chris Illich, the Angels with Artie Moreno, the Diamondbacks with Ken Kendrick. Those four owners wouldn't even support raising the threshold to $220 million in the owner's final offer in Jupiter. And like, how big a problem is this in your mind? I'll give you my take. I think it's huge. Um, like I know one thing, to get the players to say yes to any deal, the threshold is going to have to be set at a number higher than $220 million. So if there's a group of owners that's dug in on 220 or lower, doesn't it feel like we're going to be waiting for a long time for this to be over? Well, unless, as I was told Sunday night by people with knowledge of the league's thinking, that there are other ways to make those owners bent. But... Jason, to your question, there is certainly a problem. Gene Orza, in the article I wrote on Monday, basically addresses that. Says that there's a big market, small market issue. He used to be with the union for 26 years. We all know there's a big market, small market issue. They have very divergent interests, almost like older players and younger players, right? Yeah. So it's the commissioner's job to manage that, to get consensus. It was something the previous commissioner, Bud Selig, did extremely well. He would cut deals and do whatever he needed to do to get that consensus. And for whatever reason, it seems from the outside, certainly, that Rob Manfred in this negotiation has had a harder time doing that. And maybe the way to get to it is by the union giving in other areas. But the players would say, and not without justification, that it is not their job to solve the big market, small market disparity. And it is not their job, frankly. So that is where this thing kind of rears its ugly head. If you remember, Jason, you, I know you remember this. Back in 94, 95, this was the essence of the dispute. Yeah, it was. The big market, small market divide. And it has reared its head here, as we all knew it would. The question is, how far does the league go with it? And how successfully can Manfred negotiate that chasm that exists, that historically is always going to exist in this sport, because of just the way it operates economically. It's not the NFL where 
The principal source of revenue is the national co- television contract, which, which is divided equally among the clubs. This is a locally driven sport, and that is where you have the disparities come into play. Yeah, you mentioned Bud. And whatever people might think about Bud Selig or say about Bud Selig, I'll tell you one thing we can definitely say about him. Bud could get the votes. Like every, every vote Bud ever took was unanimous. How miraculous was that? Oh, wait. It was because Doug, Bud was the greatest horse trader ever to enter baseball. Yes. Like he, when he, he, if he needed something and you were keeping him from doing that something, you, you were, he was going to wear you down. You were going to talk for however many hours he had available until you'd say, okay, I'll do what you want. Just give me something. But, like Bud was great at that. And you know what? I keep that. Right? I keep thinking this, Ken. These moments for a commissioner are a test of leadership. And so doesn't this say to all of us, Rob Manfred needs to pass this test? Yes, it absolutely says that. And you can make the case he already has failed that test. We're missing games here. And we're going to miss a decent chunk of games. We'll see how many in the long run. But it is part of his job to navigate that tricky landscape. And it's difficult. I don't know that anybody who is a reasonable observer of this process can say anything other than that. But that is his job. And again, they need, the league needs 23 of 30 votes from the owners, 23 of the 30 owners, to ratify any agreement. I don't know that he has 23 so easily right now, even if they go up to, well, if they go up to anything, I don't know if he has those votes, right? We know no, of the four. There's no chance we know the he four has that the didn't votes. Want, that's but right. We know none. the four that did, they didn't want to go to 220. How many more don't want to go to 229, which is the midpoint of the current asks? We don't know that, but I bet it's more than four. Well, and sometimes, I mean, and sometimes negotiating, that could be the win. If you're, if you're really swinging for the fences and you're Commissioner Manfred, you might be like, all right, I'm going to go to the lowest common denominator here because, you know, if I can get that, everybody above that is it's saying it's a win. If they can keep everybody at 220 or, well, it's not going to go down, I don't think at this point. But, uh, you know, so that's the mentality. So that's why I asked the question about, is somewhere in the back of their mind wondering about testing the resolve of these players. If you've had quote peace for so long and you have generations of players who's, who have never been into a season on strike, I mean, what's the motivation and incentive to say, let's just see, let's see how far they'll take it. I mean, once you start missing two weeks, three weeks and you're into May, you start to go, well, maybe the all-star break. I mean, do you think they have the appetite for that? I would imagine Doug that some do. <laughs> I would expect that some do. Now, there are people on the union side who will tell you they think the league's motivation is to break them. And let's face it, Jason knows this. You know it, Doug. That's been a motivation in the past. But come April 30th in that range, teams with local television contracts that don't own their networks, the Yankees own their network or part of it, they're going to have to give rebates to those local TV networks for missed games. It's about 25 games in varies for different teams, but that's about where those rebates have to start. Then it becomes a trickier test for the owners as well. How much do they want to lose? How much do they want to give back to their local networks? So 
it is a test of resolve on both sides. What I fear from the player's perspective is we all know the owners are in the game longer. They have deeper pockets. They can withstand this longer if their goal is indeed to just drive this stake through the union's heart. And for some, I would imagine it is. But again, it comes back to the commissioner. The commissioner can't have that. That cannot happen in this sport. That cannot be the goal. And it needs to be stopped if that is the goal. And again, the goal should be a deal. Uh, <laughs> when you guys start talking about the all-star break, it takes me a while to recover. <laughs> but but <laughs> it's, it's a reminder that, see, there's another threshold that we have already reached. And that is, a week ago, we went from, can we save opening day to... How many games are we prepared to miss? That's a dangerous place to be um, because that, that answer is probably more than we're comfortable with. I go, like, how many times have we done this where I go through all the, the days that they've blown by that should have created a sense of urgency? Lockout day, Christmas day, New Year's day, Groundhog's day, Pitchers and catchers day. Going to have to cancel some spring training games day. Cancel opening day. They've blown through all of that. What's the day? Like, what, what do you see out there that would create this sense of urgency? Doesn't it have to involve, at this point, money? How many paychecks can we afford to lose? How many dates off the schedule can we, can, can we afford to lose? I don't even want to know the answer, but I think that has to be it. It does have to be it, and if both sides are looking at it like that, if the players are looking at it simply as a question of how many paychecks they can lose, and if the owners are looking at it as simply, okay, how many games and games of revenue can we lose, they're looking at it the wrong way. The way to look at it is, how much damage are you doing to your sport beyond all of that? It's not just about the owners and the players. It's about fans who will be disaffected by this, who will feel that the sport has lost them, about casual fans who might not be drawn to your sport because, well, the NBA is playing, other sports are playing, other sports don't have this problem. I got Hulu, I got Netflix, I got plenty of things to do. Well, why would I even turn that sport on? That sport's dumb. They're not even playing. So there is a level of damage even beyond the hits to both sides' pocketbooks, if you want to call it that, that is going to take place here. I don't know what the level is, and maybe fans, as they generally do, come back, and they come back at a really high percentage regardless. But it's a risky game they're playing. And the one complaint, well, one of many complaints I have in this process, is that there's tunnel vision on both sides. They're looking at how they can win, how they can come out of this, etc., when in fact everyone has already lost. So glad that you mentioned this because, as you know, I'm in Florida. I'm covering something that kind of looks like spring training. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what it is, but uh, it's given me a chance to get out and talk to people. Uh, I'm also, I'm staying at a place where other baseball people stay, so I've talked to a lot of people already, and they're worn out by this. They don't even care anymore about who's taking what position on what. They only care about the sport at this point. And these are people who are in baseball. When you talk to fans, when you read our Twitter feeds, like 
we can't barely fathom, I think, the anger and the frustration or what's worst of all, the apathy of people outside of baseball. They're, they're telling us how much damage is being done. People in baseball seem confident that these fans will come back. I am not so sure of that. I've said, you, said this to you before. We both were working in 95. They confuse the cash register ringing after that strike with everybody came back. It, baseball never got back to the same place in the American soul that it had before. So how sure should they be that people will come back feeling the same about the sport, even if they're willing to go once in a while? Well, Jason, if you remember, coming out of the strike, Cal Ripken's streak helped. He broke the record, Lou Gehrig's consecutive game records, I'm sorry, record, a few months after the strike ended. That was one thing that kind of renewed the, the country's passion for the sport. But, but while that was kind of a pure thing, an impure thing, the steroid era is really what led the sport back. And all the things that were happening in 98 that we later learned were not so real. So what are we counting on? Another thing like that happening? Is that what it's going to take? No, we don't want that, I don't think. So in my view, it's a real risk that they're running. And it's a short-sighted view of the world when you just dig in in these negotiations and you don't realize the greater damage that is being done to the sport. And... People say, well, don't make this a both sides argument. It's all the owner's fault. Well, I, I've written this. It's largely the owner's fault. But I do believe there is a mentality on both sides, a desire to win on both sides that has kind of clouded everyone's vision. Yeah, I mean, well, Ken, I mean, I think, as you mentioned, you know, history is part of it and, and just recent times. I mean, you mentioned possible ways to improve that relationship i mean is it is it a simple fix is it is it just leadership and and how would you how is that even possible to to even change given the commissioner's representation of 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 ownership obviously and in the purest sense and and obviously you know major league baseball has a player as opposed to say don fear or michael weiner back in the day it's you know it's just a different look it is leadership doug and it certainly will require a different style of leadership. Now, people have to remember that the commissioner is the representative of the owners. We like to think of him as acting in the best interests of the sport, but he is paid, he is employed to act in the best interests of the owners. I would contend that you could do that and you could still build a relationship with players that is not marked by so much distrust and outright contempt. And that's where we are right now. That has to change. Now, if it can change with the current commissioner, if he's not capable of that kind of transformation, then perhaps the owner should look at this and say, okay, could we get a person who would essentially do what Rob does for us, but somehow maintain a better relationship with the players? Now, if you're Manfred, you'd probably say, if you hooked him up to a, a truth serum or gave him a truth serum, he'd probably say, no, it's not possible. It's not possible to do what they want and still get along with players because what they want is not a world where players are going to be happy. 
So I don't know what the happy medium is and I don't know how you find that place, but I will say it needs to be explored in a much realer sense and not just lip service. I've heard lip service about this for a while. It's not lip service. It needs to be reality. And maybe it's someone with more of a feel for the game instead of a labor attorney as the commissioner. But again, that person, whoever that person is, whoever the commissioner is, he is employed or she to act for the owners, not for the sport. And if you don't understand that, you're kind of missing the boat here. Ken, let me ask you one more about, this is more about life on the other side of this. I can't wait till we can start thinking about the other side of this, but it's kind of intertwined with where we are now. Uh, People ask me this all the time. When this thing ends, finally, we know it's going to be a wild ride out there. We've written about that. Like I, I could see 50 to 100 free agents signing in like 72 or 96 hours after there's a deal. So the question is, do you think agents and front offices have been, quote unquote, secretly talking during this period so they're ready to go when it's over? Jason, I would never accuse either agents or front offices of such untoward behavior. <laughs> never. <laughs> But do I believe that perhaps these kinds of conversations took place in our wonderful, pure sport? Of course I believe that. (laughs) And if those deals are signed quickly, and I do believe, like you, Jason, that it's going to kind of play out like that, all the parties need to do is say, hey, we basically were there before the lockout started. And in many cases, it might be true. And we just picked up and got the deal done. Yeah, there's there's no way they should be enforcing. You talk to Scott Boris during the lockout, so we're going to fine you a billion dollars. No, because we like we'll need things to happen fast. So we don't even care. But Ken, we we could talk to you about this stuff all day. uh, But I know how much is on your plate. Uh, Of course, speaking of your plate, have you been keeping track of how many slices of pie at the Starkville Diner we now owe you? It's got to be a big number. A lot. Well. My stomach expanding with each day of the lockout can attest to my partaking of pleasure at the Starkville Diner. So, yes, I've had quite a few pieces of pie. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to alert our, our chefs, our bakers, and our toll collectors yes. to cater to you in the future. Okay? And uh, Thanks, Jason. Pie or no pie, we would love to have you back in Starkville when this deal gets done. Um, I, Hopefully, there'll still be a show when that <laughs> and a sport. I agree. I'm with you. And I'm there. Ken, you're the best, man. Thank you very, very, very much. Thanks, Ken. Yeah, I really Thanks, appreciate guys. it, man. Thanks, Doug. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever. And that's why I want to tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network. You're there to look for jobs. You're there to post jobs. And how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date, first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. 
Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, Doug, it is that time again. It is time for Listener Trivia, our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. Uh, You know by now how this works. We put out the call for trivia questions every week. We get a bunch of great ones. Then we pick our favorite from some lucky listener. Then we invite the lucky listener to join us on the show. Then the stumping begins. We'll tell you how you can be part of it just like that in a few minutes. Uh, Doug, we just keep on rolling at this trivia thing. Uh, I, I don't understand what has happened, what has come over us, but I think we've now gotten eight of our last 10 rights. So let me ask you, when was the last time you hit 800? I know you were a once number one draft pick. I also know you never hit 800 at Penn. <laughs> Uh, let's see. Well, I'd have to pick little streaks in there. I think I went like 13 for 17 when I got sent down from the big leagues in 96 back to triple a. And, uh, and then the it's other thing I would say though. is this. Good. It's do, pretty good. No, it's not. It's close. You would have like hit off the Royals. That, eight, that's pretty close. 800. Is yeah. that yeah, I, I, whatever I hit off the Royals is, is about as close <laughs> as I get. Okay. Yeah. I'm not looking that up. That's about right. it. Uh, So as usual, this week, we put out the call for trivia questions over the weekend. As always, many, many excellent questions submitted. But this was different because the one we liked best was submitted by a loyal listener who was so excited when he looked up this question. He submitted it last week before we even asked for questions. <laughs> okay. So I, I, I don't know about you, Doug. I think we need to reward that sort of industrious trivia work. So, yeah. So why don't we welcome back Cole Garriak. Cole, thanks for joining us this week. I, I know you've done this before, but what happened last week that you couldn't even wait for us to ask for trivia? Yeah, you jumped the starter's gun and we allowed that. Um, I don't know. I just, when I thought of the question, I was actually in a fantasy baseball draft and someone was talking about how much they loved Don Mattingly. So then I was like, oh, this might be a good question. I figured you were probably going to get that one. I realized they just gave one of them one, but it's okay. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, he was on my list, but like, I think you just gave us an answer. So, so thanks. I'll be quiet about the other. <laughs> we need all the help There's we can get. Four more. Um, but anyway, it just kind of came to me and I was like, wow, that seems like a good trivia question. And I've done it before. I looked, if you had asked recently for trivia questions, I didn't see one. So I said, you know what? I know the drill. I'll just send it in. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily we were paying attention. 
So <laughs> that worked well on your part. Uh, I've been thinking about it ever since I saw your original tweet, and I like now I have to know. Um, all right, one more thing before we get to your question. I, I wanted to ask you about your Twitter handle, which is KFCMan13. So are you a big chicken fan? Are you from Kentucky? Is there something else going on here that we need to know or we don't need to know? No, I, I so I was 13 when I made my Twitter account. So that's where the 13 came from. And at that time, <laughs> high school me or middle school me was really obsessed with KFC. Every time that we would go out for like fast food, I'd be like, Mom, can we go to KFC? And then I don't know. It's just stuck. It's my username on everything at this point. That's All right. incredible. Uh, okay, then. The KFC man is ready to do his thing. Let's get yeah. to the trivia portion of the trivia segment. Cole, hit us with your question, my friend. Okay, so there are five people who have won a Manager of the Year award and an MVP award. Who are those five people? I may have given one away accidentally. Right. So who are the other four, I guess? Yeah, you may have. <laughs> <laughs> no, did it? I was wondering, did Madeline win the MVP? Yeah, he definitely won the MVP. The question was whether everyone managed the year, and I was pretty sure that he did. So he was on my list. So that means we're looking for four more really famous people, Doug. Guys who have won both an MVP and manager of the year, which is Mm -hmm. hard for them to do, and that makes it hard for us to do. So I love this. I'm kind of... Wondering if we should negotiate whether we have to get four more answers. That's a lot of answers, but we'll, we'll, we'll give it a try, okay? Give it a shot, yeah. Uh, let's think it through. First name I thought of, uh, Cole, you can wait till we get to the end here. First name I thought of, Joe Torrey. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure he's one of these. Yeah. Second name I thought of, Pete Rose. Now, I am mm-hmm. pretty certain that he won a Manager of the Year award in Cincinnati before Bart Giamatti called him, uh, <laughs> things went downhill after that. But maybe not. But we'll put him on our list. Right. Yeah, I thought about Yogi Berra, Doug. I, like, didn't he win a Manager of the Year award somewhere along the line with the Mets or the Yankees? I mean, I Ooh. probably have that wrong, but it like I just was going team by team in my head, and I thought yeah. about him. You know, when was the first year of the Manager of the Year? Do we? Do yeah, we I don't know. know. I don't yeah. know. Um, I can okay. give you Good that. Question. You have to get four people. I can tell you what year the manager of the year started. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'll give you a little hint. 1983 was the first year of manager of the year. Okay. And when did Pete Rose start managing? Somewhere in there, right? Sounds about right. He was was with the 83 Phillies. Okay. So that that, these kids thing? Yeah. But then he went to Montreal and then he wound up in back in Cincinnati in, okay, 85, right? So. Yeah. Uh, all right, so it means Yogi Berra didn't win. No, okay. Right. <laughs> but it means that uh, Pete Rose is on our list. Um, right. Okay, so who are the other MVP-type players who also managed? Doug, yeah. I'm just going to riff on this a little bit. Paul yeah. Molitor? Like, I don't Ooh. think he was an MVP, mm. but he was manager of the year. Uh, I mentioned Pete Rose. How about yep. Tony Perez? Was Ooh. he manager of the year in Cincinnati? I, like, I, it doesn't it doesn't sound quite right, but maybe. I know people mm. were pretty outraged when he got fired. Frank Ooh. Robinson, I don't mm-hmm. remember him being a yeah. manager of the year, but it's it's possible yeah. he won in Cleveland or somewhere else. <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. Here's one that's way out of left field. Since I again, I'm going team by team in my head, and I thought Harvey Keen. 
Ooh. He managed that Harvey Wallbangers Brewers team. But Brewers. wait, what t- what year did you say? Cole? That was 1983. Okay, so the the Brewers yeah. team was 82, so he's out. Mm. Um, I don't think Dusty ever won an MVP. Red Shane yeah. names, that'd be too soon. <laughs> Clint Hurdle? I, like, I don't think so. I, no. I'm just flailing away here, Doug. <clears throat> so what are you thinking? Yeah, the um, – well, I'm with you on, like, Tory. I thought Frank Robinson might, you know, he might have snuck one in there, you know, a mm-hmm. good year in Montreal or something. I, I don't know. thought Frank might have gotten in there. Um, yeah, Dusty on my list. What about Davey Johnson? Did he win the MVP? There's no way he ever won an MVP. No, I know he had 40 home runs one year, right? At a second base. So I thought he might have got a vote or two. Henry, a guy named Henry Aaron was on that team. I'm going to guess he did not win. <laughs> okay, that's right. What about Lou Pinella? Did he did he kind of sneak uh, in? Rookie of the year, never MVP. Never MVP. All right. That's um, a good guess. Ted Williams is he too old? Too, too, yeah. too young? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1983. No way. He was long gone from managing. All right, Ryan Sandberg. Did he win in Philly for his like? I know it didn't end well, but you know, did he win a manager of the year award in Philly? Not yeah, even close. Okay, and no. then what about Kirk Gibson? Kirk Gibson is right. Yes, Kirk Gibson is a great answer. Okay, we're we're definitely putting him on the list. I zip right past him. So, you have more, or you bet out? Well, I didn't really have much more than that. Let's see. <laughs> I, like- I have Rose. I had Kirk, Tory, Robinson. I mean, Dusty's on my list. I don't okay, know. If I think Dusty- we I think we got a good group here. So, Tory, Rose, Mattingly, Robinson. Gibson, I like that. I like, like that. that group. I, like we we've wasted plenty of time on this. <laughs> you ready to guess? Let's just guess. Yeah, I like Cole, it. Is, is there any chance that it's Don Mattingly, Joe Torre, Pete Rose, Frank Robinson, and Kirk Gibson? You got four out of five. Oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. Which, that's, shouldn't that's we pretty... ask for that? Like, shouldn't we count this? <laughs> well, you didn't even mention the name like of it. the fifth person. So okay. that, I think... All know, right. Yeah, so that makes me feel better, Frank actually. Robinson was correct. Um, with Reds, mm-hmm. Orioles for MVP, and then Orioles for Manager of the Year. Joe Torre had his Cardinals and then two with the Yankees. Kirk Gibson, Dodgers and Diamondbacks. Yeah. Mattingly, Yankees and Marlins. Right. And the one you missed was Don Baylor. With the Angels for the MVP and Rob for the oh, Nintendo. Yeah. Nice. Good. That's See, a good I, one. I thought of Clint Hurdle as a Rockies manager. I forgot. Yeah, skipped over Don. Don. Baylor. Then, so, like, yeah. all right, Doug, we, we got it wrong, but I, I don't even mind anymore. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I feel like it's when you get it wrong and then also send an intimidating message to the trivia world, I feel like we've we've had some sort of glory here. I feel like we've had some glory. I, we, well, we've had a lot of glory. Uh, I, I think, but I think it was important to remind people that we're human. You know, we're not infallible. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, that very important lesson for all Starkville to know. <laughs> Humanity. Yeah. I write that down out there. <laughs> Glenville and Stark, actually human. <laughs> Who knew? Uh, whatever now. This seems like the perfect time to turn to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, to once again provide the highlight of this segment by playing another one of his tremendous play-by-play clips, which involve one of the answers 
So let's bring in the mayor. Uh, Tim, what have you got for us today? Well, guys, I could be accused of taking the easy way out on this one, but it's a soundbite. It's a clip that I don't think we've ever used on the show. So if you get the opportunity, I think you have to go for it. So we're going to go back to 1988, game one of the World Series. Eric Gibson facing the Eck. Wait, 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 wait. Can I can I ask you? Yeah. Which call are you going to go with? It's Scully. Going with Vin? It's Vin. Or or Joe Buck. Jack Buck. It's Vin. I went with Vin. Yes. Yeah. Vin's right. good. Vin works for me. Let's do it. And look who's coming up. All year long, they look to him to light the fire. And all year long, he answered the demand. So the Dodgers trying to catch lightning right now. Sacks waiting on deck. But the game right now is at the plate. High fly ball into right field. She In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. Oh, my God. Amazing. That is the all-time goosebump moment. (laughs) Like when just he, from the second he says, and look who's coming up. He's got me. He's got me. It is so good. Vin at his greatest. The, The Jack Buck call, also incredible. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw, Doug. (laughs) Tremendous. Tremendous. And you know what else was tremendous? That question. Cole, you got us, man. Uh, (laughs) What a fun question. Uh, Thanks for the question. Thanks for jumping the gun. Thanks for joining us once again in Starkville. Yeah. On top of the dugout. Over to the White Sox dugout. Ends up in the Red Sox dugout. Goes into his own dugout. Doug, we've reached the part of the show where I get to visit one of my favorite places. The dugout. That is the place where you, Doug Glanville, tell your epic stories, which I love and we all love so much. And here's where I'd like to go this week inside the dugout, kind of in the spirit of the Frank Howard story that you told earlier in the show, like spring training stories. Uh, I'm here in Florida watching something. It doesn't feel like the spring training that I'm used to, that we're used to. So here is a valuable service that you could perform for us. I would love for you to tell us a story that captures the essence of spring training for you, of what it is, of what it means, And by doing that, you can help capture it for the rest of us because we miss it. Yeah. No, Jay, I mean, right away I think about what I most miss about spring training as a a player. And I think it sort of sums it up for me. Certainly in the beginning, you know, going to my first camp with the Cubs in Arizona, just sort of learning the ropes. But after I got to the big leagues and got more established, spring training just took on a different meaning. I mean, I always appreciated the fact that the fans were walking around. You could talk to everybody. I, I enjoyed that. I used to go to the U.S. Open the tennis every year, and I used to love being able to walk around the players and talk to them. So I, I came to the sort of major league camp with that mentality of how nice it is to have access, take pictures. And, and so one thing eventually that I did with my sort of veteran years in Philadelphia was I decided that I was going to take everybody out to dinner one spring and just go and connect with everybody. I think it was the year, you know, Dave Hollins, Larry Bow was managing. 
Dave Hollins was on the squad. I had friends like Kevin Jordan or Mike Lieberthal's of the world, Abreu's and all these players. And it was, it was such a joy every night to have almost like a different teammate. You know, I, I went around, probably went to dinner like four times with Dave Hollins. You know, we're kind of an odd couple. But, um, but I, I learned so much. It was like I learned so much about who my teammates were beyond what they do in their position and their batting averages. And I, you know, found out where people were from and how they grew up. It was just a chance for me to, you know, be that veteran experienced player to not only take young guys out, you know, whatever Jimmy Rollins and, and pass certain insights on and, and also even learn from him, but also just get a chance to capture the moment as I knew I was getting older in the game and things were changing. And I, I had a blast. I mean, you know, Villa Galachi, right? The restaurant in Clearwater, such an incredible spot. So I used to go there all the time. And, you know, Luigi was amazing, the, the owner, but also just a chance to share good food. So it became like, a, it could have been a, probably a reality show, right? Good food, taking teammates out and just finding out their stories. And, and spring training just always had that feeling. It was just so peaceful. It felt like the childhood in you comes back and saying, this is what baseball is. I'm, I'm re I always felt that sense of renewal and excitement, no matter when I was 34 or 20, I always felt like there was the, the magic was found again. And I always look forward to it every year. Even like you said, the smell in the air, the birds, there's all these signs to tell you, this is where I'm supposed to be. So I miss that. And I also know that it became something about my relationships to my teammates, the fans, my coaches, especially as I got older. And, uh, and there's really nothing that could replicate it but spring training. Yeah, you really, I mean, again, you captured that so beautifully. It's the one time of the year where you can go play baseball and then go to Dairy Queen, like, <laughs> just like Little League. <laughs> right? <Exactly>. Play miniature <laughs> golf. Yeah, why not? <laughs> you, you know, back when you were a Philly and I was a baseball writer in Philadelphia, you and I used to rent spring training places oh, yeah. not that far from each other. So we used to run into each other like some really unexpected places yeah. away from the field. Dinner gas stations, yes. even at a Keiko Matsui concert once. <laughs> Doug, Keiko Matsui makes the show. Yeah, that was <laughs> surreal, but what? She was incredible. She's incredible. I still buy all her stuff, too. So yeah. for you jazz, new, new age jazz enthusiasts, check her out. I, I'd say that because it's a reminder that you are a man of many varied interests. And in spring training, there's just time to do stuff you would never do otherwise. So... I mean, what would you say was the most unusual thing that you ever did to occupy your time away from the park in spring training? Didn't you study the stars or something? And I'm not talking about baseball stars. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, once again, it, sometimes it coincides with a certain level of security you feel like, oh, I'm going to probably make the team kind of thing. That that always helps. <laughs> so you do feel a little more adventurous. But one year, uh, I, I very much love the the space program and astronomy i took two classes of astrophysics in college so i've always had a passion for you know the stars and particularly these missions to mars and the james webb telescope that's the stuff you know i love that stuff so uh one year i felt like all right i want to get into this and i didn't want to buy a telescope right away and i realized that saint petersburg had a, a astronomy club i think it was called that saint petersburg astronomy club and there was a, a meeting at one point that took us on a star party, which if you haven't been on these star parties, it starts at like some crazy hour, like midnight or something. 
and you want the star. You're up on a mountain somewhere, probably freezing cold, even in Florida. There's no wait, wait. There's no <laughs> mountains in Florida. Yeah, well, I guess a mini hill, I guess. But we definitely <laughs> went higher elevation, and as high as we could get. And we went to this field, and it was actually pretty cold because it was late. And we ended up, you know, just sort of getting together in the dark because you don't want to turn lights on because it kind of ruins your vision eyes, the eyes you need. Because you've done, you know, your pupils, and all of a sudden you have to get the darkness again, dark adjusted. So everything is in the dark. You use these like red pen lights to look at star maps, and then you try to figure out which way you're looking. And what was so cool about it is that you think of the sort of the uh, of Polaris, right, the North Star. When you see it over the course of like four hours at night, you realize everything in the sky rotates around it. It's pretty cool to see, like. Oh, I get it. I get why this is the fixed point in the sky. And when you actually see it and watch the zodiac go by, uh, it really brings this like har harmony about, first of all, you know, your humility and smallness, but also how everything is so like beautifully uh, harmonic and orchestrated in a way, right? It's, it lays out so well and, and, and so evenly, it, it's shocking to see. So we're all in the dark and you barely can see people's faces at a certain point. You're sharing telescopes and you're looking up. And I found it to be you know, very exciting and exhilarating to just reconnect and, and in, in a sense, like a spiritual journey. It's sort of like R.A. Dickey going, what did he climb, like Kilimanjaro or whatever? He, he climbed some mountain Everest. Yeah, so, so that was that was my break. And I remember actually I wrote a column for ESPN at some point about doing the, the star parties and all the things I learned and, and these beautiful objects, seeing Saturn. I mean, really cool. So, so uh, that was something I said, hey, let me just have my break away from the park every once in a while and, and meet up with the St. Petersburg Astronomy Club and, and uh, got to know a lot of people. It was really fun. So yeah, yes, Doug, you just reminded us that everything in the universe is harmonic, except the people trying to end the lockout. So let's get on this, okay? Let's do it. All right, that's going to do it for this week's show. We will be bringing you podcast magic just like this all spring long on the Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety absolutely free everywhere you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to read the incredible writing in The Athletic, we can tell you how. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. And if you're a new subscriber... You can subscribe for $1 a month for the next six months. $1, everybody. You'll be happy that you did. Also remember, you too can be part of this podcast. That's because every show, we continue to invite the most fun listener trivia asker of the week to join us right here and prove there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong, except eight of the previous ten. Now, if you'd like to do that, you just need to submit a question by email where you can find us at Starkville at theathletic.com or is, there is the traditional Twitter route, which is followed by most of our questioners. So if someone were going to follow that Twitter route to find Doug Glanville, where would they set their GPS? Well, it would be at the top of a mountain in Florida, as we determined. At Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. All right, and I'm at the bottom of that mountain at Jason S-T. That is at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T. Please remember to hashtag those questions. Hashtag Starkville QS. 
So, Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Ken Rosenthal for joining us and reminding us about that whole thing. Thanks to Cole Garriak for the trivia question. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Doug and I will see you soon on Starkville. <laughs>